Uh, thank you to everybody who's made uh, this evening of civilised discourse possible, uh, to the Christian Union here, uh, to our chairman and my uh, opponent, Dr Cave, and of course to all of you uh, for turning out tonight. As theologian Michael Novak says, civilization is constituted by reasoned conversation. Civilised human beings converse with one another, argue with one another, uh, give evidence to one another, barbarians club one another. So I'm looking forward to uh, disagreeing with Dr. Cave, but doing so agreeably tonight. Is belief in God reasonable? 
there's a couple of different ways I think you could kind of parse that question. One would be to ask, is having good arguments for God's existence a necessary condition for rational belief in God? Well, I don't think so. Um, on the basis of what Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the principle of credulity, uh, I think that for people with uh, certain experiences, it can be perfectly reasonable of those people to believe in God without actually having an argument in favour of God's existence. Swinburne says that it's a basic principle of knowledge, which he calls the principle of credulity, that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be to us until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Just think what would happen if you tried to follow the opposite principle, you would never end up believing anything. So for people with the right grounding experiences, uh, religious experience, or they just look at the world and it just seems to them to be a creation, then it might very well be reasonable for people to believe in God without actually having a, an argument that they could kind of rehearse in their mind. Of course, on the other hand, you could ask this, is having good arguments for God's existence a sufficient condition for rational belief in God? Well, uh, of course it is. And I would like to briefly tonight uh, present three arguments for the existence of God. An ontological argument, a cosmological argument, and a moral argument. Here's the uh, basic outline of an ontological argument for God. Premise one, if it is possible that God exists, then God exists. Premise two, it is possible that God exists. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. Now, I will unpack those premises uh, a little, but notice, first of all, that this is a logically valid argument, which means that if the two premises are both true, then the conclusion really must follow. Uh, Peter Cave, I was uh, very interested to read in his humanism book, seems at least uh, open to thinking about this argument. He says that most humanists, and indeed many believers, judge ontological arguments as mere wordplay. Uh, yet we ought not to be so smug. After all, similar wordplay has led to fascinating discoveries in mathematics and can lead us to see what cannot exist. For example, a greatest prime number. It was Anselm, of course, uh, back in the uh, 11th, 12th century, uh, who said that God is the greatest possible being and tried to tease out the implications of this definition of God as a being that exhibits the, the greatest possible set of what we would nowadays call great-making properties. Let me explain about great-making properties. They're properties, qualities, that uh, are objectively valuable, you're objectively greater for having these properties than for lacking them, and which also admit of a logical maximum degree. So on this chart here, you'll see on the uh, left-hand side some non-great-making properties like size, something could always be bigger, uh, spatial position or um, being smelly, to use an example from Richard Swinburne, uh, from uh, Richard Dawkins, sorry. Uh, but on the other hand of the chart, we have a list of great-making properties. Uh, properties like being, which exists of a maximum degree in necessary being. Properties like power, which exist of, uh, admit of a maximum in being almighty or omnipotent. Goodness, which admits of a maximum in being holy or wholly good. It was the American philosopher Alvin Plantinga who pointed out that a maximally great being must exist if its existence is possible, because necessary existence is a great-making property. 
Let me put it like this way to try and bring out some intuitions here. To deny my existence, one needn't claim that my existence is logically impossible. You can coherently claim that I fail to exist despite my existence being possible. But you can't coherently claim the same kind of thing about God. Um, God's existence is either necessary and actual or impossible and non-actual. So if God's existence is possible, then God's existence is necessary. Moving on to the cosmological type argument. Peter Cave in his book on humanism says that humanists often give a friendly wave vaguely in support of everything being grounded in the physical. In contrast, some of us, and I write as an atheistic humanist, believe that whatever the scientific progress, there will remain features of reality resistant to that type of understanding. Features of reality resistant to that type of understanding. What type of understanding? Understanding being grounded in the physical. It seems to me that the implication of that view is surely that explanations grounded in physical realities ultimately entail explanation in terms of some non-physical reality. Which, of course, brings up the question, what sort of reality would that be? See, I think if you grant that physical realities are contingent, that is, it could either exist or not exist, it follows that a non-contingent, i.e. necessary thing, must be a non-physical thing. And Peter Cave, again, seems to sort of be on track with this. He says, for example, that assuming this universe is one of an infinite number of possible universes, whichever existed would be immensely unlikely. Now, he's talking there about a different type of argument, about the fine-tuning argument, design argument, but it does seem to me to be implicitly uh, admitting that universes are the type of thing that may or may not exist. In other words, that physical universes are contingent. But, of course, there are only two possible types of non-physical thing. Abstract objects, on the one hand, and minds. Well, abstract objects, uh, things like uh, numbers, if you think that numbers uh, genuinely exist, some philosophers do, uh, abstract objects don't have causal powers. They don't interrelate with physical universes, for example, as Peter Cave admits. He says, if numbers are objects at all, they are abstract objects lacking causal powers. Well, therefore, scientific explanations in terms of contingent physical realities entail the existence of a necessarily existent and therefore non-physical mind. That is, something contingent exists. It's impossible for everything to be contingent. I mean, after all, what outside of everything would there be for something contingent to be caused by or dependent upon? Therefore, something exists necessarily, but nothing physical exists necessarily. Therefore, something non-physical exists necessarily. And a non-physical reality is either an abstract object or a mind, but abstract objects don't enter into causal relationships. Therefore, the necessarily existent, non-physical cause of all contingent reality must be a mind. And finally, the moral argument. Let me put it like this, a single syllogism. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. 
Second premise, objective moral values do exist, from which it would follow logically that therefore God exists. Now, by objective moral values, I mean values that are completely independent of you and I and us and what we decide or feel or choose. And notice what I'm not arguing here. This is not an argument about moral epistemology, how we know what's right from wrong, but rather an argument about moral ontology, about whether there is such a thing as objective right and wrong or not, and how we can account for that reality, given that we think it exists. As the philosopher Paul Copan puts it, belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral. However... I'm arguing that the existence of a personal God is crucial for a coherent understanding of objective morality. Let's look at the premises in turn. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values don't exist. Why would you believe a thing like that? Well, by definition, objective values can't depend on, and thus be relative to, us. But morality, in our experience, by its very nature, moral values are, are prescriptive, commanding type of things. But surely prescriptions, commands, only must ultimately only derive from a mind of some kind. And also in our experience, moral values obligate us. We have an obligation to behave in certain ways, to not behave in certain ways. But obligations surely can't be owed to any non-personal, impersonal reality. But if we could only have prescriptions and obligations to personal realities, but objective values are by definition ones that transcend you and I and us, where is this taking us? It seems to me to point towards a transcendent personal reality. As atheist Julian Beghini writes, if there was no single moral authority, i.e. no God, we'd have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false, in Beghini's opinion. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say that I have made a factual error. When we have a disagreement, is it that one of us at least is wrong, or is it just like a disagreement over which flavour of ice cream we happen to prefer? Atheist J.L. Mackey said that if there are objective values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument for morality to the existence of God. Now, of course, Mackey was an atheist, so uh, he went on to say that if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. Well, of course not, but another problem would arise. The problem of having to swallow believing that there are no such things as objective values. Which really is the bigger problem here. Having to believe that God exists, or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true. So, if objective moral values exist, this, according to Mackey, would lead us to God. Peter Cave at least says that it's no essential part of humanism to reject objective values, far from it. And he says that whatever sceptical arguments might be brought against our belief that, say, killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that killing is morally wrong than that the argument for subjectivism is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong. Full stop. I agree. 
atheist Buster Schaefer Landau makes a similar argument when he says some moral views just are better than others. Despite the sincerity of the individuals, the cultures, the societies that endorse them, some moral views are true, others false. And my thinking them doesn't make them so. They're objective. The best explanation of this and of the fact that cultures can get moral values seriously wrong is that there are moral standards not of our making. And indeed, note that a moral subjectivist, as soon as they try and argue for moral subjectivism, cuts off the branch they're sitting on. If they claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion of any argument for moral subjectivism. Therefore, there cannot be sufficient counter-evidence to the properly basic belief that there are objective moral values. If you reject objective moral values, you're going down the road that Friedrich Nietzsche took, the road that took him to saying, why should you pay attention to the truth? Why should you pay attention to the truth? So we can sharpen our moral argument a little more pointedly, perhaps, by putting it in this form. Premise one, if God does not exist, there is no objective moral duty to pay attention to the truth. Just letting you got one minute. Thank you. Second premise, but there is an objective moral duty to pay attention to the truth. The conclusion that follows logically from those two premises is that therefore God exists. Thank you for your attention. And now we invite Dr. Peter Cave for his opening speech. 15 minutes, and you'll get one minute. Well, thank you for inviting me to take part in this debate. I'm afraid some of the things which you read out about me are out of date or wrong. I'm not a doctor, I'm just a humble lecturer in philosophy and so on. But there are many, many things on the internet which are many, many years out of date. Um, also, I no longer lecture at City University, but I still do at the Open University. I'm not sure why that's relevant, but I thought I should correct it. <laughs> These things happen, you know. Um, I was very, very impressed with the Hollywood film show, of course, but I thought I should be more humble this evening and just try to speak in a slightly more ad-lib way, um, because I knew that Peter Williams would indeed be providing some interesting arguments. I didn't realise, though, that presumably I owe him a £10 note, maybe, for advertising my book so much. I thought some of the words were wonderfully expressed, but maybe not the order of them. But thank you, Peter, for the advert. In fact, I thought you spoke very, very eloquently, and I kept wondering, how can I follow that? And then I thought, how can most of us follow that? Because some of the arguments, dare I say, were in fact fallacious and not to be followed. So I'll try to make some general comments about the position which I hold, how belief in God is not reasonable, and then I'll try to pay attention to some of the comments which Peter Williams has made as we've gone along. I keep using the word try because I'm wondering where my next sentence comes from, but it will come in a moment. I suppose when we talk about is belief in God reasonable, we must ask the question, which God? If I was talking to some Hindus, if I was talking to some Muslims, if I was talking to some other strange religions, no doubt, the understanding of God will be slightly different or sometimes radically different. Sometimes it will be in terms of gods and not God. And so it's an interesting feature that although many religious believers say we're talking about God, there are many disagreements about the nature of God. And let us not forget that although we have this rather nice academic discussion about God here from Peter, 
many, many believers draw the conclusion from their belief in God that lots of horrendous things should be done. I believe that some people do believe that God ordered the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt some centuries ago. I do know that millions of people actually think that contraceptive practices are morally wrong because of their understanding of God and the scriptures. And of course many homosexuals and witches for that matter have suffered a lot over the centuries through belief in Islam or in Christianity. So although it's fine and I'm quite keen on discussing these topics in this abstract way which Peter Williams has done, and that's very, very good, nonetheless let us not go away from the fact that the sort of God which millions of people believe in is not that friendly a God in many respects. I assume everybody here, though, thinks in a nice, loving God way if they believe in God at all. But having put that main point to, um, into the front, let us then move on and start thinking, well, what sort of areas would lead people to start saying belief in God is reasonable? And I suppose the issue is there that it's going to be more reasonable to believe in God than not to believe in God. And I certainly take the point from Peter that it might well be the case that it's some revelatory experiences which might lead you to believe in God. Of course, some people might have experiences of the holy turnip and believe in the holy turnip. Just because you're having experiences, it doesn't show that the thing which you think you are experiencing does actually exist. Another background point, I see I'm having many background points, I'm down to one minute, no, 11 minutes. Um, Another background point is to bear in mind of course, and a few believers in God these days actually think it's metaphorical language. They do not think God exists as an ontological existent being in the supernatural world. They think that when you talk about God exists, you're talking about having a certain attitude of reverence towards the world, sometimes an attitude which we as a humanist would approve and sometimes which we would disapprove of. But I'm assuming that Peter, from the nature of his arguments, is actually saying there really is an existent reality outside the natural world. To my mind, that sort of argument ends up being the sort of argument which we might say, isn't it amazing we don't all float up to the ceiling? Oh, we know about gravity, but isn't it amazing that gravity keeps us down? There must, in fact, be little yellow fairies holding us down in our seats. Otherwise, we would be floating away. What I'm trying to say by that rather crazy example is to say that it's a big mistake to think that God explains anything at all. Postulating God is no explanation, I argue, just as saying there are little invisible fairies, which in fact are yellow, but we cannot see, but they're keeping us down in our seats. I think belief in God is almost as crazy as that sort of belief. Which are the three areas then which I tend to stress? Well, maybe I can make them four, five or six areas. It's always unwise to give a number, isn't it? Um, I think the big question which Peter is addressing is, how come all of this? We need an explanation for it. God is going to be our explanation. In particular then, Peter has mentioned morality. And so, yes, there's a big issue about some um, people say, I can understand how maybe the world happens to exist but nonetheless that there are objective moral values points towards God. And that's an argument which I'll address in a moment, but I think that's a lousy argument. But that's to do with oughts then, ethical oughts. We ought to do this, we ought not to do that. How can they exist if there isn't a commander in some way? As an aside, I believe that Peter said a moment ago that for there to be oughts or duties, you have to have an obligation to someone 
who must be other than yourself, but I thought God was good, and so somehow God mysteriously has an obligation to himself. So we have the ors. In fact, I'm trying to build up a word. So we have the H for how does all of this exist, and then we have the ors to do with morality. Many people in the stillness of the night, who are after too much to drink, start wondering what's the point, what's the purpose of it all. And we need a God in order to give point to our lives. Some of us acknowledge we have no point to our lives, but nonetheless people feel that's important. So there you have the P for point and purpose. And then we have this big issue about an explanation for the existence of material things, for tables and chairs, for the solar system, for the universe. And that's where you may look at experience or reason, and indeed Peter did draw attention to both of those. So if you've been paying attention, which I'm sure you haven't, I very craftily have put together key words. H for how, O for ought, P for purpose, P for point, E for experience, R for reason. So we're looking at hoppers. We're trying to work out the hopper which is going on in this story. And I'll quickly address then the arguments which I think go wrong. I only have seven, eight minutes to go through them. With regard to the experience of the world, the existence of the world, Peter drew attention to the fact that you need to have a cosmological argument. How is it that contingent things exist? Well, let's just think about it. What is achieved by saying that something which is utterly mysterious, which we have no understanding of, namely a reality which necessarily exists and has causal powers, how does that help to explain how things exist? We don't understand what God is. We have no experience of a necessary being. So what is achieved by saying that, oh, well, the universe must have been caused by a necessary being? It doesn't help at all. In fact, if you remember, when we're talking about the whole universe, we're talking about the whole of space and time. So however can you start talking about where's the beginning of the whole of space and time? It does just... Acknowledge, you should just acknowledge it's a nonsense. Furthermore, how do you know that the whole universe, taken as a whole, in fact, is not a necessary existence? I know. Wisely enough, I discussed the idea that there could be other universes, but that was on the hypothesis some people believe that. As David Hume would say, we've got no actual grip on what's going on with regard to the universe, whether there could be a cause for everything or not. It seems very odd to think there could be a cause somehow beginning space and time. That doesn't make sense. So that's to do with the experiential type of arguments, our experience of the world around us. Another sort of argument which Peter made use of is the ontological argument, a well-known argument. It's to do with that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And magically, by conceiving of that concept, you're meant to be able to draw the conclusion that therefore such a being must exist. But of course that doesn't follow at all. There still is a question about why ever believe there is such a being at all that necessarily exists. There's no good reason to believe it. We could talk about the design arguments as well, which Peter alluded to, and in fact, dare I say, quoted from a wonderful, wonderful book called Humanism. Um, but the design argument is one in which often these days comes down to the fine-tuning argument people say, hey, isn't it amazing that the world has just exists in such a way that there happens to be human beings with consciousness? Isn't that astonishing? Doesn't that show it must be designed? No, it doesn't at all. Um, just, because you, just because if it's true you cannot give a cause or explanation for everything, 
It doesn't follow that, therefore, you must look for an explanation in terms of purposes or points or design. And even if you thought that was a way of going about it, the religious believers are normally inconsistent because they think there must be a design for this world then because of the existence of conscious life. But they don't think there would have to be a design for a world which just consisted of amoeba or a world which just consisted of, I don't know, some strange elements we've never encountered. Um, But of course the argument would be as strong for that as for this world. Any world which existed if you do think there's an infinite number of possible worlds, is equally unlikely. There's two other areas there in which I've got four minutes to run through. There's the one to do with point. What's the point of life if there isn't a God? I believe on the glorious 12th of July, the grass might be ever so pleased to learn that they're part of a bigger plan because they get shot, of course. Just because we might be part of a bigger plan, namely God's plan, it doesn't mean that our life has any point for us. But furthermore, it's a crazy idea, if you think about it, to say that there must be a point to human beings, to their lives, which rests outside of their lives. Because if you think that for there to be a point to a life, it's got to have something outside of it, then, of course, you can always ask the question of God. What's the point of God? If you say, oh, well, God has his own point built within his existence, then you can say that of our human lives as well. Many of us do find point in it with regard to enjoying philosophy, some strangely fine points with regard to um, playing football and so on. But I, I hear a tale of that, tell of that. But we can find points within our lives. Nothing is achieved by thinking to have a point to your life, to have meaning to your life, you must go outside it. If you really think that's important, then indeed you would have to ask the point of God and all of a sudden religious believers don't seem to want to ask that question. The third big area which I mentioned is ought to do with the ethical principles, the ones which Peter mentioned, the moral argument for the existence of God. I know this does fascinate people in a big way. I suppose some of us just find it baffling that the way in order, in order to understand the nature of goodness or badness requires reference to a supernatural being. Why does it do that? What is achieved by that? Why think it's got to be true? Some of you may be aware there's a classic argument derived from Plato called the Euthyphro Dilemma. He was discussing piety and love of the gods and so on. But it still comes down to one of these big issues, namely what are you going to say about goodness in relationship to God? If you say that things are good purely because God commands them, then it looks as if you've got to start saying, well, how do we know what God is going to command? God could command the torture of innocent children, apparently, allegedly, he sometimes does, and that would make it morally good. But we don't believe that. Of course, the religious believers would say, hey, well, God is not the sort of being who would ever command that type of thing, but then that seems to imply that you do have an idea of goodness which exists independently of God's commands. And so you might well say that God commands things because they are good, but already you've got the concept of good which is independent of the existence of God, and so nothing is achieved by saying you must therefore make reference to God in order to understand morality. I do believe in some objective moral values, um, but as I only have 1 minute 23 seconds, I won't go through one or two of them, fortunately. That means I'm not put on the spot straight away. What I'd like to conclude with then is to say that what goes wrong, if I may be so bold, with the approach of Peter Williams and other religious believers 
is they confuse um, giving a mystery for giving an explanation. We should accept that explanations come to an end. In order to understand the natural world, explanations come to an end with regard to the natural world. Nothing is achieved by saying, oh, we must pop over to the supernatural, when at the end of the day, most religious believers say that God moves in a mysterious way, and so that's not much of the explanation. If you say you're going to explain the understanding of the world in terms of a mystery, a mysterious being that moves in a mysterious way, that is no explanation at all. Similarly, with regard to morality, if you think that in order to understand morality, you have to go to another being, namely the supernatural God, then you've got the same questions again, namely what constitutes God's being good. You're back to square one. Nothing is achieved by throwing in the supernatural. And finally and thirdly, if you think in order to have meaning to your lives, you need to step outside into other things, then indeed if God is going to be giving you that meaning, you have to ask the question, what's the meaning of God? And so that again is a pointless, mysterious explanation. And I've gone into the red, so I must stop. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. And now, Peter Williams, you have your uh, ten minutes to respond to uh, Peter's argument. Well, thank you uh, very much uh, for that, Peter. Um, I've been jotting down notes furiously, uh, trying to follow that through and then think of responses off the cuff. It's from here uh, that I join him in the off the cuffness of the uh, event. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that it seemed to me Peter wasn't arguing uh, to you that um, he's offering you a better alternative explanation than God. He's saying that no explanation is better than a bad explanation, which he thinks God is. Um, start down here. Yes, he, he noted a, a, that... He thinks that God is no explanation because it's so mysterious if you posit God as an explanation. And the illustration that he gave was a very obvious um, gap-type argument, uh, what's uh, more properly called an, an argument from ignorance, where you just point at something and say, I don't understand this, and then you immediately jump to your conclusion, where you just put in your favoured explanation that you happen to fancy. Of course, none of the arguments that I gave tonight were arguments from ignorance. They were all uh, logically valid arguments with more than one premise to them. So they didn't fall into that argument from ignorance trap. And indeed, they were all deductive arguments. Uh, God hasn't been uh, proffered here in any of these arguments as a hypothesis, a positive explanation, but as uh, a conclusion that is deduced with logical necessity from the truth of the preceding premises. Now... Um, I'm glad to see um, Dr. Cave talking uh, about religious experience and saying that that could indeed uh, ground a belief in God. But of course, just because you have an experience doesn't prove that that experience is true. It could be delusory, uh, in a sense. Well, I agree with him there. What I think the issue here is, if you have an experience of something, does that throw the burden of proof on those who are sceptical about the reality that you've experienced? And I think following Richard Swinburne and the principle of credulity, uh, that it does. So I think religious experience puts the, the ball uh, in the sceptic's court, uh, at least here. Uh, I didn't quite uh, 
managed to note down his response to the uh, ontological argument, so perhaps I'll, I'll grab at that uh, later uh, in the debate. Um, but it, it is partly a response here to the question uh, that uh, Dr. K started with about, well, what do we mean by God? Uh, this is a term that we can't even understand to kind of have a debate about. Um, well, sure, people have different understandings of what they mean by God, uh, but I was very clear at the beginning of this debate what I was meaning by the God that I was arguing uh, belief in was rational. I gave a stipulative definition using uh, Anselm's The Greatest Possible Being, which is the foundation of the ontological argument. And indeed, I think all of these arguments that I've mentioned uh, start telling us something about the nature of God. See, if these arguments work, then we know that God exists necessarily. Uh, that he is personal, that he is wholly good, that he transcends humanity, and so on. And indeed, if the ontological argument works, we know that he has the greatest possible set of great-making properties. On the cosmological uh, argument, Dr. Cave um, suggests that maybe the universe itself is a necessary being. So he agrees with me that there is a necessary being, he just disagrees with me about the nature of that necessary being and says, well, maybe it's identical with the physical universe. Uh, even though uh, I was able to, to quote him in other instances saying uh, that, yes, other universes could be the kind of thing that may or, or may not ex exist. And, and maybe he was uh, talking um, uh, in a particular context there, which I didn't quite pick up on. So I'd be very interested to follow through uh, this idea with him of, of whether or not he thinks that the, um, the idea that there are other universes, for example, um, is that something that's just necessarily true or necessarily false, or is it uh, a, a, an idea that, that may or may not contingently, as it were, be true? Um, let me tell you a, a little uh, philosophical story from the philosopher Richard Taylor that I think brings out this intuition about the contingency of everything that's physical or composed of physical things, such as the physical universe. So suppose you were walking out in the woods one day and you saw uh, this big shiny metal ball in the woods. Um, you might think, oh, maybe I, I've stumbled into a sculpture park or something. Um, but you wouldn't uh, be surprised when people uh, posited an explanation of why that ball is there. It would strike you as something that, that could have an explanation. Um, and one of the versions of the principle of sufficient reason runs that if a, a proposition is true and it possibly has an explanation, then it has an explanation. Well, what if that shiny ball in the forest were uh, the size of the whole planet? Would it still require an explanation? Well, yeah, I mean, we give explanations for the formation of the Earth in science and so on, don't we? What if the, the shiny ball was the size of the whole galaxy? It still seem to require an explanation. What if the shiny ball was 99% the size of the known, the known universe? Still require an explanation? What if we make it just that, that little bit bigger and make it identical in size to the known universe? Does it suddenly stop needing an explanation just because it's a little bit bigger? I think that points to an intuition we have that physical things are things that do require explanations. Um, I've already answered the point about no understanding of God. I think these arguments uh, give us an understanding of God, and I gave a, a definition at the beginning anyway. Um, we have no experience of necessary being, says Peter uh, Cave. Um, well, we do have experience of necessary truths in our moral experience. I think, uh, I think moral oughts are necessary facts. It's not as if um, torturing children to f for fun 
could have been a good thing to do, but just happens to be a bad thing. Um, uh, that very much ties with the intuitions that Peter is trying to draw on when he mentions the Uffizio uh, dilemma uh, that would point to uh, moral, mor- morality being arbitrary as a very bad horn of a dilemma uh, that you don't want to be stuck on. And I agree with him about this. And when it comes on to the moral argument, and raising the Uffizio dilemma, does, does that mean that uh, morality is based on God's commands and is therefore arbitrary and contingent or, or therefore independent of God? Well, there's a, a third option here at the very least, one third option, and that is that morality is not based upon God's commands, nor upon something that is independent of God, but rather based upon God's necessary character, his very character. God, as Plato would have said, is the good. And that splits through the horns of that dilemma uh, completely, and also, therefore, uh, gives a, a nice answer to the question of, well, does God morally obligate himself? Does God have moral obligations? You can simply say, no, God doesn't have moral obligations, but since his necessarily existent character is the good, God will, of course, tend to behave in line with the good, with his necessary character. Um, So I think neither of those points uh, raises a sufficient objection uh, to the moral argument. Now, very quickly, in my last two minutes, I want to pick up on a couple of the other arguments that we've briefly touched on. Um, Peter Cave notes about the fine-tuning design argument. Um, It's not merely the argument that the universe is fine-tuned so that there are people, but even the fact that the universe is sufficiently fine-tuned in its basic laws and their relative strengths, that there can be biochemistry or atoms uh, or last uh, long enough to have anything uh, interesting and complex uh, in it at all. Um, Yes, uh, maybe all worlds are equally unlikely, but that's only half of the kind of criterion that you would use to infer uh, design from something. Um, If you take a watch and take all the parts apart and put them in a box and kind of shake it up, any particular arrangement of those watch parts in that box is one equally unlikely arrangement of watch parts out of a huge possible number of arrangements of watch parts. And yet there is something strikingly significant about the the only arrangement of those parts, which is a watch. It is specified. It hits an independently given pattern, in this case in the direction of, of telling the time. Maybe universes with different laws would all be equally unlikely, but what's specified about the universe that we do know exists is that it's specified in the direction of being able to have interesting, complicated life uh, and so on in it. Um, So um, trying to uh, critique the fine-tuning argument on the basis of, well, any arrangement of things is equally improbable uh, uh, doesn't uh, cut the mustard, I think, because it's ignoring half of the kind of criteria that you would use. And finally, um, issues about the meaning and purpose of life, I think they're a separate thing. Meanings is to do with values, back to the moral argument. Purpose, it simply does seem to me that if you think there is an, uh, an objective innate purpose to existence, you must think that there is a purposer of existence. Things get whatever purpose they have if they're contingent objects from the purposer who created them for an end, for a goal in mind. But of course, if God, exi- God exists, he's not a contingent object that could have failed to have a purpose or does have one because it was created for a purpose, um, like a watch compared to a, a pile of rubbish that's just blown there by the wind, but he would exist necessarily. And so um, that wouldn't be a question that could raise uh, a problem for God. I'm out of time, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. And first response by Ms. Cave. Ten minutes. 
16. Um, yeah, sometimes when I come to this sort of meeting, I do start worrying. I may get converted. Um, so might, maybe Peter will convert me, yes. But um, not by some of his sleights of hand. But I'm sure they're very fine hands, I hasten to say, Peter. Um, at one point he said, for example, that Peter Cave says that maybe there aren't, there could be a necessary being, and then therefore he agrees with me that there is a necessary being. All I said is, for all I know, perhaps the whole universe could be understood as a necessary being. I don't know that, he doesn't know that, I'm certainly not saying therefore I'm committed to saying that there could be a necessary being. I suppose if you want my quick answer to that, I think there cannot be a necessary being. That's very different from talking about necessary truths or talking about abstract entities as being necessary. The God of Peter Williams and so on is a necessary being who actually has causal powers and apparently is very personal. So do remember that in as far as you may be lulled into falling for the silver tongue of Peter with regard to some of these arguments, the cosmological argument in no way points towards the existence of a personal God in no way points towards the existence of a loving God, in no way points towards the existence of a God, which some of you may believe in through courtesy of some ancient books, which you call scripture. And remember, there are many other ancient books which give different stories about what's going on. Also, Peter made a fine point, a true point, but nonetheless a highly misleading point. Truths can be misleading, witness politicians. Um, he said, I've given you valid deductive arguments. Wow, valid deductive arguments. Indeed he has. And I can prove that pigs fly by a valid deductive argument. Grass is green and pigs fly, therefore pigs fly. That in logic is a valid deductive argument. Everything hangs, on co of course, on whether you think the premises are true or not. As simple as that. And some of Peter's premises are very, very, dare I say, iffy. Again, as Peter said, it's quite difficult flittering through the different points. I suppose one point when he was talking about the design argument is I was trying to make the point that if you do think there's an infinite number of possible universes which could have existed, and I would suspect we haven't really got a grip on whether that is possible because we've only known of one whole universe and we don't know much of that either. But if we think we can make sense of an infinite number of other possible universes, and then let's propose there's one with some strange chemical imbalances going on of which we're totally unfamiliar. From the metaphorical viewpoint of those strange chemical imbalances, they'll be saying, what a wonderful world. How strange it is it should exist. Peter is very much playing the card of saying how interesting this world is because it's interesting, arguably, to human beings. Maybe not so interesting to me when you have a grey beard and you're feeling tired and so on, but many of you find the world interesting. But um, it doesn't mean that, therefore, there's some objective interest about this universe. If it were a universe purely of amoeba, amoeba would doubtless find it very, very interesting and say there must be a great amoeba designer. In fact, David Hume, whom has been referred to, whom Hume has been referred to, um, David Hume does indeed look at the design argument, as I'm sure Peter knows. He says, well, if you look around the world, and if you are going to argue that there's a designer for it, akin to the way in which you may argue there's a designer for the watch, then you may as well say, given the mess of the world, that maybe the designer is a botched 
it's a botched job, the result of an infant deity, or maybe it's a design resulting from a committee of gods. There'll be no reason at all to draw the conclusion that is designed by one single necessary being who is all good and all knowing. There'll be many, many good reasons to think it certainly is a botched job and has actually been designed by a mishmash of semi-supernatural gods. Indeed, if you read John Stuart Mill, but let's not appeal to authority, if you just look around yourself, there's a huge amount of suffering in the world. Little deers go running through the forest and then undergo great pain and suffering when they hit tree stumps. Um, why did a loving God allow such a horrible series of things to happen? If it really was a loving God, he surely could have made things better than this. Um, I'm sure most of you must be believing that, seeing how tedious this evening is now getting. But remember, there are drinks afterwards, I hope. That's a forlorn hope, I know. In fact, sometimes I write in terms of sympathy for the devil, because if you really are going to take what's going on inside the world as your model for the designer, then surely you should start thinking, well, maybe the design is pretty malicious given the nasty things which happen, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the distress, the pain to the little deer in the forest, um, the anguish when your girlfriend or your boyfriend runs away from you, and so on, you may think, surely the world could be a better place than that. And if we've told, uh, oh, well, life is so important, it's so valuable, God really appreciates life, and we should therefore be going through our self-development in order to gain heaven or whatever the story is, then we may think, why is life so rare in the whole universe, as far as we can tell, and also why is it so painful? And furthermore, why does God remain so mysterious? Is it like a great game? Why doesn't he reveal himself more clearly? So the sort of arguments which Peter are deploying, if they're meant to be pointing towards a personal God, point to a pretty nasty God, I'd say, or at least if you want to be rational, you might say it points to two supernatural powers, one pretty bad, one pretty good, and they're in sort of semi-competition, but that would be a very rational position to move into, and of course that's unlikely to appeal to most religious believers. Dare I quip? Oops, I did just quip. Um, what were the other points which Peter raised? Um, Yes, he seemed to be saying that we can offer nothing better than saying there's no explanations, but I think it's a very, very important point. If you are going to take everything, the whole universe, including psychological states, including the physical states, including abstract entities, if you believe in them, or numbers and so on, if you take everything, then how can you possibly explain it with regard to anything else? unless you suddenly have this mysterious move of saying, oh, well, there must be a necessary being about which we know nothing else except, oh, magically, he's a personal God, all-loving, and so on. That is an explanation too far. In the sense, it's no explanation at all. It's a move into mystery. And as we know, many, many religious believers, when the going gets tough, they do start saying that, oh, well, our understanding of God is so limited, we can't understand what goes on there. We can't even use the human concepts to apply to God, some say. So I really do think that the appeal to God as an explanation is an appeal to mystery, and hence is no explanation at all. There are many other little points which came out. Sometimes I think Peter supports a sort of argument in which it's geared very much towards saying that physical things and presumably psychological states have beginnings and so therefore there must be something which causes them without a beginning 
But again, if you take the whole physical universe, including the psychological states, including space and time, you can't make sense of there being a beginning to that. Going back to the morality issue, which was the other big area which Peter criticizes um, humanists, atheists on, Yes, some atheists undoubtedly are nihilists. Some atheists do say anything goes, but many, many atheists, in fact, do think it's not the case that everything, anything goes. They are committed to various moral values. And a classic example I'd give, I now give to Dan, is I'd just say it just is morally wrong, isn't it, if I start chopping off the limbs of Dan against his wish, wishes, causing him great pain. Or we could do it slowly, we could go through the fingers, bits of fingers and so on. So it could carry on for some days, we'll be slicing Dan, Dan up. I would say that is morally wrong, full stop. Is it only morally wrong because there's some strange, supernatural, mysterious being about which we know so little, which maybe some people think is referred to in the Bible, other people think is referred to in the Quran? Isn't it just morally wrong, full stop? Does that make it mysterious? Why, if that makes it mysterious, so be it. The world is a mysterious place, maybe. But I don't think it has to make it mysterious. There are many, many features of the world which we acknowledge, and that's one feature which we do acknowledge. Sometimes people say, oh, but not everybody would agree with that. Some people take a great delight in chopping up Dan. I'm sure that's true. And given the right attitude, maybe many of us would take a great delight in chopping up Dan. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't follow that therefore it's morally right. It just shows that a few of us are deviants. I live in Soho, you pay good money for deviancy in Soho. Um, but it doesn't actually follow that therefore you're committed to saying it's morally right or it's morally wrong or anything goes. It just shows that sometimes some of us make mistakes about what is morally right or wrong. So I think once again that postulating God does not help with regard to understanding morality, does not help with regard to understanding the existence of the universe, and it does not help, but I haven't gone back to that one, in understanding ideas about the meaning or the purpose of life. I'm into the red. Thank you. Okay, uh, hopefully no chopping up of me will take place. Give, give it time. <laughs> 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 okay, so now I'll hold that council's consent. <laughs> 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 right, let's move on to this, away from this topic. Uh, now, each person... <laughs> each person will have five minutes to respond. And second response, five minutes. Five minutes. see the wisdom of not deciding these issues by common consent. Um, I'm glad to see uh, that Peter Cave now admits that my arguments are logically valid and aren't uh, arguments from ignorance or gap arguments or anything like this, and that the real issue here is whether or not the premises of the arguments are true or not. Uh, I'm not trying to explain everything in an all-consuming sense, which uh, wins a definitional victory by proving that, of course, you can't have an explanation of anything outside of everything because there's nothing outside of everything to do the explaining. I'm simply trying to explain the things mentioned in the beginning premises of the arguments that I'm talking about. I'm trying to explain particular things in terms of God. Um, Moving through the ontological argument, we haven't had uh, too much backwards and forwards on that, but I think it still holds that if it's possible that there's a God, 
then he would exist necessarily and that it is indeed possible that there's a God. I don't think there's anything being said so far to show that it is logically impossible for God to exist. On the cosmological argument, um, I'm, I take the, the correction. Um, Peter Cave is not saying that maybe, uh, he's saying maybe the universe is necessary, not that it was, and indeed, and I quoted him uh, as he was saying it to make sure I get this right, he says, I think there cannot be a necessary being. So what he's attacking is the first syllogism of the cosmological argument I presented, the one that goes, something contingent exists, it is impossible for everything to be contingent, after all, what outside of everything would there be to do any of the causing the depending upon? Um, exactly the same point that he just uh, made about explaining everything, and I agree with him about that point, but if you agree with those two points, then it follows that, therefore, something exists necessarily. And my argument builds from there. Uh, you could put it uh, in these terms. Uh, some things exist because they're caused to exist. Is it possible that everything that exists is the sort of thing that only exists because it's been caused to exist? Well, caused by what? Outside of everything, there is nothing, and from nothing, nothing comes. What about the conclusion of the argument? Of course, the cosmological argument doesn't tell you anything about the, the moral nature of the creator. It simply tells you that there is a, a personal, necessarily existent reality that is a mind of some kind. Its moral nature, I would point you to the moral argument. Now, note here, again, it's crucial to grasp the fact that I'm not saying that atheists believe that anything goes, that atheists reject objective moral values. Both Peter Cave and myself agree that there are objective moral values, that torturing children for fun is wrong, full stop. It does depend on the children. <laughs> However, some atheists are in that camp, some do, like Mackey, whom I quoted, reject objective moral values because they fear that if you admit objective moral values, that leads you to a belief in God. Now, I think Mackey is half right and Peter Cave is half right. But if they're both half right in that manner, if they're both half right in that there is a link between objective moral values and God, and that there are objective moral values, then it follows ineluctably that there, are, that there is a, a God that explains objective moral values. Uh, just a quick word on uh, design, uh, an argument that's, that's kind of floated uh, in here. Um, amoebas, if they were to exist, so just a universe of amoebas, uh, fascinating thought, amoebas would think that their universe was designed. Well, of course, no, they wouldn't, because they wouldn't think anything as far as we know. Um, so that's a sort of neither here nor there point. But let's grant, for the sake of argument, that amoebas can think about the, uh, the meaning of their existence, um, well, they would probably be right, because a universe that can sustain the existence of amoebas would have to be incredibly fine-tuned. It would have to have a very, very unlikely set of initial conditions and laws that were hitting an independently given pattern that would enable those laws to sustain life even as simple as an amoeba, whereas the vast majority of universes, when you run the numbers, would not. Um, maybe the designer is, uh, makes a botched job. Maybe he's evil. Maybe it was a committee. Well, of course, the design argument doesn't really speak to the moral nature of the, of the designer. The moral argument does. But the problem with suffering doesn't leave Grant implicitly that there are objective evils. 
But if there are objective evils, that can only be because you know them by contrast with objective good, which grants the second premise of the moral argument for God. Thank you. And now, uh, Pete Cave's second. Into battle yet again, yes. Um, even I, my biology is very, very poor, but I didn't really think amoebas would think. It was a metaphorical thought. Um, but also, I'd say a completely chaotic universe with no life at all, with a complete mishmash of chemicals, completely messed up. From its metaphorical perspective, it would say, how odd this particular universe should exist. In other words, my claim is that whichever universe does exist, if it's possible to have an infinite number of different universes, then indeed they should equally well point to a designer, albeit a bizarre, chaotic designer in that example. And yet indeed religious believers don't normally produce that argument. They say it's just because of certain well-ordered universes. Normally they do stress through the anthropic principle, the concern for conscious life, um, that they point towards the existence of a designer god. So my point is that if you were committed to that, you would have to be committed to other bizarre gods were their universe to be different, but that is not the position of most religious believers. Also, um, <coughs> Peter, once again, dare I say by another side of hand, seemed to think that I was yielding something by saying that his arguments were deductively valid. Indeed, the ones I saw on the board were deductively valid, but as we've said, that proves nothing at all. It hangs on the premises. And so rather casually, Peter does say that it's possible that there could be a necessary being, but I don't accept that in that casual way at all. I wouldn't be at all sure about that. I would doubt it. It would be as casual as saying that there must be a greatest prime number, and that would clearly be wrong. And given that God is indeed meant to be all-powerful, that does suggest an infinity, an infinite aspect to him, and so maybe it is incom inconsistent and it's incoherent to make sense of an all-powerful God given it will be rather like making sense of a continual infinite series of numbers in which there's a last number. But my position on that would be it doesn't help because we have no grip on what a necessary being is and to start saying, well, we can't explain the causality of the whole of the universe unless we go to something else. Well, why think there could be a causality for the whole of the universe? Because remember, the whole of the universe includes space and time. So are you then magically saying there's some sort of cause which is outside of space and time, which then brings the whole of the universe with space and time into existence, and you can make sense of that? You can't make sense of that. I mean, don't delude yourself. You've got no grip on what it would be for a so-called necessary being somehow to cause and design a universe which within it has space and time, given your understanding of design and causality is actually linked to occurring within space and time. So it really does not make clear sense, if any sense at all, to talk about there being an all-powerful, all-loving, personal God somehow who creates a whole universe with space and time. When theologians start discussing that area, that often is where they start saying, oh, well, we're just using English language in an iffy sort of way. Iffy is a technical term, by the way, in my language, for dubious way. Um, we don't really understand God at all, is some theologians' viewpoints about this. Of course, then that completely undermines a claim that God has any explanatory value whatsoever. 
there's another thought going on here in which Peter says, all I can say, you know, all I am, all this Peter is saying is, we have to go for no explanation. I'm not saying that particularly. I'm saying that there's no explanation for the whole universe, um, and it's a mistake to think that there could be, and it certainly is a mistake to think we can't see, find a cause or explanation, so we must look for design to it. That's a wild leap, a crazy leap. But I can put some positive things in view um, with regard to some of these other arguments, namely, with regard to morality, it's not just a matter of common consent. It's not a matter of common consent, because as we know, some centuries ago, many, 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 many Christians in general commonly consented that it was morally right to have slavery. A few objected to it. Many, many, many Christians today condemn homosexuality and contraception. And so I'm certainly not arguing in favour of common consent, not least because of what some religious believers hold. What I am arguing, though, is that if we address our fellow feeling, if we actually pay attention to our sense of empathy for other people, our sense of fairness, then that's where we get a grip on moral values. And it just is true. Even young children, I gather, though I tend to be on the side of Martin Amos, when children are noisy, you should say, go play in the traffic. But even if you are with young children, they very quickly have a concept of fairness, don't they? They very quickly say, oh, you've given too many sweets to him, I should have some, it's not fair. And I think it's built into human nature to have an awareness of these concepts, these moral concepts, and that's what constitutes morality, those moral concepts and their application. But I'm well into the red, so I'd better stop. Thank you. And now this is part of the evening where we open the floor to questions from the audience. You may direct your questions to either speaker or both, if you wish. Oh, are we going to give answers? Uh, we hope so. Oh. Hopes can often be unsatisfied. Well, <laughs> I'll let you give the answers. Okay. Both, both speakers will give answers. Yeah. The same answers. Let's not all agree. I'm easy. I'll give one an answer if you want. Right, good luck there first. Um, gentlemen, uh, up there. Could I ask uh, Peter Williams if he's ever been an atheist and Peter Cave if he has ever been an atheist? Uh, so, so, yeah. I'm sure you could ask that. Do you want to ask it? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, if you'd like to. Do you want to go first? Uh, I have never been an atheist. I, I was brought up as a Baptist. In fact, to my shame, well, not really my shame, but I sent to the boys' brigade and so on. But when I dare I say, when I became faintly adult, though you can say I'm not that adult, even at this um, age.com, this dotage, um, then I cease being a believer and I'm a straightforward atheist. I see no good reason at all to believe in God. Okay, um, next question. Gentlemen, I'm going to my question is for Peter K. The term God is usually used as a concept of the mind. Um, when people think of God, they think of something, usually a man, but something nonetheless. Um, have you considered a non-conceptual God, so as powerful as of a tool as the mind is, something which can't be, the mind can't comprehend? So, let's just try a question. Uh, so, a lot of people conceive God as man, but you have considered God as a non-conceptual atheist. I certainly don't conceive of God as a man, or indeed a woman for that matter, but I'm not too keen on conceiving of God at all. I, in my position, really, the understanding of God is very, very unclear. 
And so that's why I started off saying I wasn't that clear which God we are talking about. But once you start talking about the concept of something which is totally incomprehensible, then, well, you've just said it, it's totally incomprehensible, so there's nothing more we can say about it. And it certainly does not provide any reason to believe in it. I don't know how Peter responds to that. Uh, that's a very uh, interesting question. I think I just want to comment that there is a, there's a difference between whether or not you can comprehend something, that is, understand everything about it through and through, uh, and whether or not you understand at least something about it, enough about it to be able to refer to it um, accurately, and so on. And whilst I would agree that we cannot comprehend the nature of God, I mean, goodness grief, we don't even comprehend the nature of the universe, I do think that we can have a sufficient understanding of enough about God to mean that we can meaningfully refer to God and talk about God. Um, the gentleman just behind the... Uh, sorry, just with the round up. Yes, do you believe on the intelligent design in the story about the creation of the world as well? Or not? Do you believe in the theory of intelligent design? Intelligent design I I want to hedge this slightly because that's a very broad term, it's a very broad cap, that that, that term, uh, under which would be subsumed a lot of uh, views that I wouldn't agree with, as well as some that I do. Uh, So I I am supportive of certain ideas that fall under the intelligent design uh, label. Sorry? Like yes, yes. I, I, the gentleman mentions uh, the, the concept of irreducible uh, complexity, exactly a, a subclass of the, the broader um, design detection criteria of specified complexity, which was the criteria I was defending in the application. But there's no argument that uh, this, this, this concept is not, uh, <laughs> it's not old. Uh, it's shown that there is no such thing as irreducible complexity. It's, uh, it's uh, a concept that many creationists tend to. Tend to but, uh, but it's well, I, have to, I have to agree to differ on that one. But. Sorry, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, uh, gentlemen, please. Uh, this is Cade. Uh, Anthony Fluke is a famous atheist transient. He might wrap his head around how matter came from nothing. And I can't quite work that again. Do you want to uh, explain how you, you see that? How did, how did matter come out from nothing? Uh, again, I don't know the details of Anthony Flew. I certainly know that he started saying that he always had some vague idea of some intelligence behind the universe. And then he came out with it in full just before he died, two or three years before he died. I, I think the question is just wrongly put. I mean, if you think of the whole universe of material items, I assume you mean physical items, whatever the current, dare I say, transient scientific story being given by Imperial College, you know, you have quarks at the moment, but in a hundred years we'll have different physical entities. But whatever story you have in your theory, I mean, somewhere along the line you're just going to have to say there's nothing more to be said. And nothing is helped by saying, oh, we can't say anything else about our physical theories, so therefore they must have been designed. That's a wild leap. If you just accept the universe as a whole range of laws of nature, which to some extent we understand, or maybe we don't understand, and I'm sure we've come to revise them, 
nonetheless, nothing has actually then helped by saying, oh, so therefore they must have been designed by a designer about which we know nothing except he designed, and somehow we link it to some old scriptures. I would just say the universe, as a good fact, happens to exist. Whether we can make sense of nothing having existed, I doubt, but maybe we can. Whether we can make sense of other universes that existed with different physical laws, maybe we can. But whatever the story is about that, nonetheless, there's no good reason to postulate something outside of it, because it explains nothing at all. If you really thought you had to go outside of it to explain it, then you should go outside of God to explain God. If you say, oh, no, no, God's the sort of thing which you don't have to go outside to explain, then maybe that's what the universe is like. Thank you. Next question is here. I read that according to, to some statistics, uh, people who believe in God are happy. Assuming that that is true, would that be a good argument to support believing God? This is a question for both uh, speakers. So that's a question by people. Uh, do people believe God? They have statistics show that they're happier people. Um, is that a if I had a big dictionary, I could look up the word happy to see what it means. But in my life, I'm not too sure what it means. But that quick aside, it depends whether you value the truth. Um, my mother died a few years ago. She was a believing Christian. She was very upset at the death of her husband a few years before that. And so I suspect she truly believed that somehow they would meet in some afterlife. It would have been callous. It would have been cruel. It would have been lacking complete sympathy for me to start arguing with her saying that was a nonsense belief. So if it helps some people get through the struggles of life, I don't mind so long as they don't start imposing it on other people. Just as sometimes, I uh, not to say this too often, red wine helps me to get through life, but I don't try to impose red wine on other people. And so yes, it might well be the case that, I'm sure it is the case, that many religious groups feel happy in their mistaken belief. And I'm easy. If they want that mistaken belief, that's fine. Um, but don't try. My, my big worry as a humanist is they often try to impose it on others. So people who leave, for example, the Islamic faith, some extreme Islamic people would say they ought to be killed. People who are vaguely Christians are misled into thinking they ought not to use contraception, for example. Thank you. Yeah, I, I totally agree that the, the, the crucial thing is, is truth uh, and not comfort. Um, that uh, marker stone place, though, is at least interesting to, to think through the ramifications of if it were true that a, a form of life based on a, a belief uh, in God and that belief was false, it, it, it kind of indicates a sort of fundamental absurdity reality in which the, 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 the most flourishing form of life, if that were approved, is one that's based upon believing a falsehood. Um, and I suppose you have to kind of take your existential choice then uh, and think to yourself, well, do I, do I fundamentally believe that this is an absurd universe in which that's not a surprise? Or do I fundamentally think that this is a, a reasonable, rational universe in which it would be quite surprising if the most flourishing form of life were to be fundamentally based in something that's not true. I would I like to speak in favour of absurdity, but more directly addressing your question. Um, for many centuries, people, there were many, many happy slave owners. They had the mistaken, they had the false belief that it was right to own slaves. Um, they had a happy life. You don't then say, oh, well, 
somehow there must have been a truth in that for them to be having such a happy life over so many centuries. Obviously not. For many, many centuries, people treated animals appallingly, and some still do. Again, they had happy lives through their mistreatment of animals. We don't say, oh, well, there must be some intrinsic truth to the mistreatment of animals. You should just accept that many false beliefs can, on occasions, lead groups of people to great happiness. That's rather sad, but that's true. If they don't harm other beings or other people, then I'm pretty content with them. I'd go for the comfort. But, um, you know, it's a matter of balance. Yeah, I, I think both, we would both of us want to a clarify what's meant by happiness here or flourishing, because I, I would certainly think that a, a, a form of life in which one is uh, abusing others is, is not, uh, in Aristotelian uh, terms, even flourishing for, for oneself. One is harming oneself in the process of harming the other, because you are not uh, becoming uh, the, the sort of moral character that you're meant to, meant to be. So I think everything's going to, to depend upon what we mean by here and, and what the statistics actually show, and so on. That, that's fair comment. For once, I'm on the side of Peter Williams. That probably means you're wrong, as I'm on your side. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Peter Williams, you refer to objective morals, and you needed God, you said, to somehow place those on. And if there wasn't a God, there could be objective morals. I don't believe that morals are objective. I think they're all values. They're all facts and values. But that's another matter. What I don't understand is, from your point of view, what is it about God that... Uh, makes him this basis. Is it just that he's very big and powerful? And if you don't say that, something horrible will happen to you. Is it simply fear? It can't be because you already know he's good, because you've already admitted that you're incapable of yourself deciding what's good or bad. You need something else, revelation or God, to tell you. So I still don't understand what is it about God? Is it that he's invisible or a long way away or some other fact about him? which gives him this, this, this extra power. So he's got a million, million votes, and all of us have only got one vote. Thank you. Uh, that's an uh, excellent uh, clarifying question for me. Uh, of course, the, the tempting retort is to come back at you and say, but since you don't think that there are any objective moral values, you, of course, don't think that I'm under any objective moral obligation to treat your question seriously or to answer you. Uh, but uh, in charity, I, I will do so because I do believe in objective moral values. Um, and I think there is a connection with God. And the question here is crucially not one of, of as we were saying, how, how do we know right from wrong? That would be a, a, a separate uh, issue, a separate argument, maybe. But rather, the question of given that there is such a thing as an objective right and objective wrong, what kind of thing is it? How, how could it exist? What kind of existence does that have? And this immediately brings me to the heart of your question about what is it about God that kind of means that he can ground objective moral values. It's not because he's more powerful than us, because he gets more votes, or, or, or because he was here first, or anything like that. It is simply that he has, he has a character. He's a personal being, he has a character, and, and he exists necessarily, essentially, that character just is the good, is good. In your judgment? In, in my judgment. That, was, that would be what I, I would say. That's the way of spreading the horns of the Pizio oh, dilemma. Um, so it is his character which, which, which means that he is good, not, not his power or anything like that. 
just point of clarity here. So my which argument is it which you use to show that he's a personal being in character? Hmm. If I can forget what I answer. Um, which argument do I use to show that God is a personal being? Well, first of all, the ontological argument, a maximally great being, which shows personal. Secondly, the cosmological argument, which I gave, showed that God must be a mind of some kind, rather than an abstract non-physical object. And the moral argument shows that it's the, the kind of being, the personal being, is the only kind of being that can issue commands or obligate behaviour. So all of the arguments that I gave, and the design argument as well, of course, because it shows an intelligence. So all of the arguments. I think I misunderstood the term personal in this context. I thought you meant um, being concerned about human beings, but oh, just no. Absolutely not. No, that's it's just what I mean. Like a thing, like like a person, more like a person than, than a rock or what well, isn't of size. But, yeah, yeah. but metaphorically, metaphorically, yeah. yeah. That's... Next question. Doesn't that seem yeah. strange? <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm too well, it seems amazing. Yeah, but <laughs> doesn't it seem bizarre? But moving on. Um, it's the gentleman and Richard. I'd like to ask Peter Williams, does he ever watch Wildland? Think about the, the slaughter of animals that is going on daily. Trillions of animals are killed every day. And what kind of objective morality is there between the, the killing animals and the I can't see any fine tuning in, in a system that involves mass extinction. Okay. Um, in terms of the design argument, of course, um, evil designs can be produced by evil people just as much as good designs by good people. The argument that I would go to in terms of, of the moral character of God is that it's the moral argument. If you're saying there is objective evil in, in nature, that implies there's objective good, and objective good for the reasons I, I gave, I think leads us to the implication that there is a wholly good personal being. Who exists. But why? Why not? Why does it lead to the um, conclusion that a wholly bad person would be in this, given the amount of badness in the Well, this is because I think that the concept of um, objective evil is not uh, an equal and opposite to the concept of objective good. I don't think they're equal opposite realities, rather, I think evil is uh, uh, parasitic upon the concept of, of goodness. But suppose it's an asymmetrical there. Suppose we said we've just gone the wrong way around. We're looking around the world and it clearly is designed by a pretty evil God. Looking at all the suffering. At this very moment, millions of people are actually suffering now in parts of the world. And we all sit by and casually allowing it to happen and God seems to permit it. Doesn't that imply a pretty bad God? I don't think so. For the, for, I don't think we're going to find any fundamental agreement if. if uh, my intuition is that uh, goodness uh, is uh, the fundamental and evil is a falling short of the good, a failure to do what is good, that is how we understand, how we define, how I think we experience evil. If you want to posit um, that evil uh, is the fundamental reality, um, well, we're stuck both ways. Well, aren't we? We're stuck both ways. ways. Uh, how, would you, how would you trust uh, anything that you perceived or, or thought or intuited if the basic fundamental reality upon which you depend is, uh, is evil? I think we're in a situation where you either have to trust your, your fundamental intuition on which we agree that torturing children for fun is wrong, 
And if that leads us to a, a ground, an explanation of that fact, then we have to trust the goodness of, of that ground. Because if, if we don't, then we can't trust anything. And we might as well uh, give up um, any uh, attempt at rational conversation at all. So I think it's just a, a fundamental, basic given belief um, that's at the, at, the, at, the, at the very basis of us being able to have uh, a rational conversation at all. So my position would be that the way in which you have to sort of slide around this in order to try to defend the idea that your God is bound to be all good should undermine your belief that you need to involve as God a supernatural being in this story at all. I mean, it's not helping at all. You know, you have to sort of meander around, say, oh, well, suffering doesn't count as a positive um, state of affairs, somehow it's the absence of good. All this sort of talk, it just seems to show that the whole manoeuvre you're engaged in is misleading, and we have a concept of goodness, we have a concept of badness, we can see some good things, we can see some bad things, we can encounter many, many more dilemmas, and nothing is achieved by saying, oh, well, the goodness is grounded in a good, all-natural, supernatural being, and nothing has been helped by that. Isn't it much better to say, hey, we're the sort of people who we do have a sense of goodness and badness, it's built into us in some way, or it's built into the universe in some way. We can argue about the details, but nonetheless, that's our grounding for how we get on with people, and that's what we should focus on. And furthermore, I know you like to distinguish between the ontological and the epistemological viewpoint here. We should bring in the epistemology here and say, furthermore, the way in which religious believers end up wanting to reinterpret their texts and arguments about it, trying to say, well, that bit isn't a genuine interpretation and so on, is because somewhere along the line they recognise within themselves what's morally right and wrong, and that does not depend on their readings of the scriptures and such like. I don't know, I suspect you perhaps do believe in bits of the Bible, and I always find it fascinating how somehow that ties in with academic arguments about the existence of an all-powerful God, because once you start believing bits of the Bible, you enter a whole new ball game, of course, and saying, well, which bits should we accept, which bits should we reject? And as you know, many, many sincerely scholarly Christians radically disagree about how they ought to conduct their lives. And so these ancient scriptures, which somehow get linked to belief in God, are no reliable source of morality at all. It's far better to turn to yourself. Last point, and furthermore, they are a danger. These scriptures are a great danger. Because if you do think they come from an all-powerful being, and you do get into your mind the correct interpretation of this is to ostracize homosexuals, or the correct interpretation of this is to kill people who leave our faith. And then it's going to be pretty difficult to persuade them because they think they've got the backing of an all-powerful being. So I actually see the argument being very, very dangerous as well as actually being a bad argument. <coughs> well, it sounds like a challenge for a second debate on, a, on the topic of Revelation. Uh, I just thought I should show a bit of passion. <laughs> Uh, that's what we have to take up later, but, uh, but I, I do think that the fundamental point I want to make here is that if you, if you think it's just enough to say, well, we have these basic intuitions about morality, which I share with you, it doesn't matter where they come from. I think it really does matter where they come from, because if it comes from a source that is not trustworthy, good, and reliable, then you can, of course, trust those intuitions. But see how you build in. You make the assumption that the God to which you can argue through design and moral arguments and so on is found to be trustworthy, reliable, and whatever other feature. All the evidence around it shows that he's not that trustworthy, he's not that reliable, he certainly is pretty coy, 
Otherwise, he'll be, be explaining himself far more to most of us, and he wouldn't be given these misleading instructions, which many sincere religious believers churn out. I could say that again in different words. Give the audience another chance. We've got time for one more question. Uh, the gentleman with the t-shirt. According to Sorokin, a sociologist in Harvard University, uh, when he was trying, as he says, it's difficult to explain the existence of God just by rational, by rational thoughts. I mean, we cannot put the God as an equation unless we can prove it or not. And the, what you have said before about uh, fundamental intuition, the fact that we have a fundamental uh, intuition about goodness or about bad, uh, I think personally that this could be an evidence of God that we have uh, inherited from him. Because we believe that we are a copy of God, that the fact that we have intu fundamental intuition, what is good and what is bad, this could be an evidence. Well, if we are a copy of God, as understood by Peter, we're a pretty bad copy. Um, but again, I can't see any reason to take that extra step, because the extra step is into, as I repeat, mystery, and so that's no good step at all. If you somehow were able to identify God, give an understanding of God, such that you could explain the suffering in the world, the anguish in the world, the misunderstandings of God, and so on, then maybe some of us would well, I'm sure we'd start listening. But at the moment, it seems bizarre to most of we atheists and agnostics and humanists say, but however do you make that leap from the world in which there's so, as Johnson and Mill said, if you looked around the world objectively, there'll be much to blacken God's name. And that surely is true. It's only because you're already looking at the world through God-given eyes, as you see it, that you think, oh, it must be all good. We must explain away the suffering. But if you start in neutrally, you'll say, no, clearly it's not all good. Look at just look around us. The fact that there is a suffering, that's that not a exclude the existence of God. I mean, no, some of the suffering is coming from people. It's right from the human. I don't think the earthquakes come from people. I don't think the volcanoes come from people, but the earthquakes and the volcanoes cause a huge we amount of suffering. The gentleman here mentioned a huge amount of animal suffering, we which has not been caused by We people. as humans, we have uh, made so much damage to the planet that may cause this kind of earthquakes or... Do you think you caused the earthquake? Are no. you, uh, you think you caused the earthquake 2,000 years ago? No, of course you didn't. That's a bit of, dare I use a technical term, nonsense. Obviously, human beings have not caused these major earthquakes or tsunamis or volcanoes erupting. Not even Iceland really did it. It was a volcano what did it. It wasn't Iceland trying to get its own back on us. Thank you very much. Um, Mind you, if there's any Icelandic people here, I apologise. <laughs> sure, Iceland is a wonderful country. But maybe cold. Gerard Iceland didn't cause the volcano. The volcano, of course. The volcano, okay. Um, but nor did God. There isn't a God to cause the volcano. Okay. <laughs> um, are we going to have one more question? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, one question. Just back. My question You described the ball in the forest and you said that you uh, described the existence of the ball in the forest. Uh, Would it be any different? describing the existence of the world as, as being the universe. I think the question should be uh, the other way around. Uh, my reasoning for that is that the world in the, in the forest uh, 
that's within the ego. So our idea is of causality. Uh, for example, the reason why the world exists comes from other experiments that we've done, like Galileo experiments, and the same world, and then finding out that the cause is acceleration. Is that now, as the ball, when the ball is small, we can basically apply our ideas of causality to the devils, which we develop within the universe to that ball. So when the ball becomes as big as the universe, and it's the universe itself, then we would be living within the ball, and our ideas of causality would be, uh, how would our ideas, how would we know that our, our ideas of causality should be thought, which means one by one, which should be gathered by experiments. When the ball as big as the universe and contains the universe itself, it's contains all of space time. So how could you say that uh, the same ideas of causality that apply to the small ball apply to the big Because the type of causality that, that the cosmological uh, argument I gave, gave uh, is training on it is not the, uh, the sort of temporal causality uh, of scientific uh, historical explanations. Uh, it's rather what's uh, not a temporal cause being looked at here, it's not an argument about the beginning of the universe or stuff like this. It's about a sustaining uh, cause. It's based on uh, intuitions uh, about uh, principles of explanation, um, such as um, the idea that everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, and that explanation is either uh, in the in its own nature, the necessity of its own nature, or in something outside of itself. Um, and the question then becomes: Do you think that physical things, however arranged, are the type of thing that, that contain their own explanation in their own nature, or the type of thing that has an explanation outside of itself? Um, another way of putting the principle would be to say. Um, if a uh, proposition is, is true and it possibly has an explanation, then it will have an explanation. Do you think it's, it's possible that the existence of the universe has, has an explanation? Because if the universe exists necessarily, then there is no, no, no explanation beyond that, that that's possible once you grasp that it, it exists necessarily. Um, so that illustration was a way of trying to bring out those, those intuitions, but it may also be confusing in terms of I'm also talking about the kind of explanations that are given within historical sciences. Okay, but doesn't the whole idea of something needing, needing an explanation develop within, within, within the universe itself? So does the idea of that within the universe itself really apply to the whole universe and look at it from outside? Yeah. Well, that, that's also a fascinating question, but I, I, I think so, because just the fact that an idea develops within a universe doesn't mean that it can't apply to anything outside of that universe. Um, we develop ideas within this universe about other universes, for example. That doesn't mean that those ideas can't apply to those other universes if they existed. No, but then we're talking about... I'm talking about if, if you believe in there are many universes, and I'm talking about all of the universes together, and the ideas that we develop within all of them. Yeah, well, then I can mount a meta argument and say it's always possible that there could be a, a, another universe or a different type of thing, or uh, name an abstract object, um, think it into you know, conceptual existence, and say just because you think of a concept within 
are universal, the set of universes, that doesn't mean that you can't apply that idea outside of that set. Or, 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 you know, that it doesn't even make sense to ask the question, could there be something in additional to the set of all universes? That seems to be a question that makes sense, even though we've thought of it within this universe. Okay, um, now we move on to the final part of the evening, where each speaker gives their uh, closing statement, and I'm sure they've appreciated much, much more time than we're going to give them, but they've got a mere two minutes each, and he's willing to go Okay, let's uh, rattle on through this. Um, I think uh, religious experience can at least put the, the ball in the sceptic's court. Uh, they need to give us some uh, sufficient reason to doubt our experience if we're people who have that experience. Um, I think it is true uh, by definition that if it's possible that God exists, then he will exist. And I think it is possible that God exists. And of course it follows from that that he does. Peter Cave says to the second premise, it is possible that God exists, he says, well, I would doubt that. Um, he argues as follows, there isn't a greatest prime number. There, there can't be actual infinities. Well, I agree with him about that, but then that's beside the point, because uh, great-making properties, by definition, are properties that have a maximal degree. They're not actual infinities. Uh, the, the concept of uh, omnipotence or of, of necessary being as opposed to contingent being, there's only two types of being here, not an infinity of different types of being. There's only two, contingent or necessary, and so on. So uh, objections to actual infinities, with which I agree, don't apply to great-making properties. In terms of the cosmological argument, um, we've seen some disagreement uh, about the first syllogism. Um, I simply appeal to you to think through the there are some things that are caused to exist. Is it possible that everything that exists is that kind of thing? Uh, it seems actually from other comments that Peter Cave made that he agrees that when you, you can't explain uh, something outside of everything, to bring in an explanation outside of everything doesn't make sense. And so there must be something that exists necessarily, and the argument follows uh, through to there, to a necessarily existent non-physical cause of contingent reality that's a mind of some kind. Um, Peter Cave says, but, but can the cause of the universe be outside space-time? Well, it can be outside our space-time. Certainly, if God is non-physical, he's not within space, but maybe he has his own time uh, within him. There's all sorts of ways of, of solving that. Um, and again, we're not talking about uh, temporary prior causes here, but a sustaining uh, cause. In terms of moral arguments, people, people differ, yes, but are they wrong or right when they differ? Uh, I think at least some of them, if they're differing, must be wrong because there's an objective reality there. I wasn't saying Peter grounds morality in common consent. Um, I agree that moral knowledge is inbuilt to us. But the question then comes, what uh, explanation do we give that knowledge? What explanation do we give to the moral reality that is known? And I think here, uh, because a command must come from a mind and because an obligation must be owed to a person, uh, that must come from a god. And I'm out of time. Thank you. and he'll get uh, about 2 minutes 45 seconds. Wow. Um, every second counts, but I've already used up my seconds, I see. Where does one begin? Um, 
God is meant to be all-powerful. Normally that's taken to mean that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing. And so therefore he must know allegedly an actual infinite number of things because the infinite number series is indeed infinite. So you can't get away as quickly as Peter implied saying that, hey, we haven't got infinity built into God without a limit. We have a limitless infinity built into God and that does seem to worry Peter. I'm not sure whether it would worry me, but on that technical point, God is trapped into that position. Um, the silver tongue of Peter is very amazing because he softens you up into thinking, well, in everyday life, everything has a cause. And yeah, we understand causes, as that gentleman was saying, within time, within space. Um, we understand how psychology can cause physical events and vice versa and so on. And then when we get to the whole universe, it suddenly is now, oh, it's a sustaining cause. Do we know what a sustaining cause is? Obviously we don't. We have been slid into thinking there must be a sustaining cause because we've used the word cause and we know there are causes within the world, in our everyday world. So that's, that's a cheap move, I think. Well, it may be quite expensive, but I'm not too keen on it. Um, experiences of God. Well, I'm sure many, many people, many centuries ago, had experiences of Olympic gods. Um, I'm sure the um, Scandinavians had experience of Nordic gods. People have many, many bizarre experiences. There's no reason at all to think that those experiences point to an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. Indeed, our experience of the world very much shows the opposite, namely that worry to make the dreadful mistake of thinking that there is an all-powerful being, and then arguably that all-powerful being has quite a few malevolent traits about him. It just isn't true that human beings cause volcanoes and earthquakes. I assume it isn't true yet. It may become true, of course. Um, some time ago, W.C. Fields was a famous atheist, a comedian. W.C. Fields was seen when he was ill, reading the Bible, and they say, what's happened to you? Have you suddenly converted? To which W.C. Phil said, no, 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 just looking for loopholes. I really think there's a problem with this type of debate because what really is going on here isn't the academic debate, it's to what extent we think religion should permeate our lives. I don't mind religion permeating people's lives so long as they don't try to enforce it on others. The problem with religions in most cases, in many cases, is that they do try to enforce it on others either directly or indirectly. In as far as though some of you may be still wondering about this, I can but quote a Cambridge philosophy professor in the mid 20th century, Charles Dunbar Broad, and he said, well, all you can do is wait and see, or alternatively, wait and don't see. Thank you. And that concludes the evening. Thank you very much for coming on behalf of Imperial College Bristol Union. I hope you all have plenty to think about, I'm sure you do. And one thing, put our heads together and to thank both speakers for giving up their time to come to Imperial to uh, take part. And we must thank Dan for surviving this chairmanship without yet being scathed by having his limbs chopped off. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.